Oh, it's going. Okay, good. Well, hello again. Thank you so much for having me back. Uh, I'm really enjoying this miracle study. I hope that you are too. I'm really enjoying the teaching. Rhonda's last week, I'm like, I need to, because I listened to us, I'm like, I need to see all those maps because I want to be able to map it out. And so I've just had a lot of fun learning alongside of you. And this week we're going to talk about Jesus, our healer. So I want to start off by telling you a story about when I was in college, I went on a mission trip to the country of Nepal. And Nepal is nestled in the Himalayan mountains. It's where Mount Everest is. So it's sort of like by China and Tibet, and it's just in this mountainous area. And I was there for 30 days. So it was quite a long trip, and I was 20 years old. And we stayed, we spent some time in the capital city of Kathmandu, and then we went out to some remote mountain villages as well. Uh, The trip was really cool, it was really amazing, and it was also really, really hard. It was hard because we did hard work, it was hard because it was a culture that was so different from my own that I was thrown off by everything everywhere. It was hard because the conditions were definitely not what I was accustomed to. And it was hard more than anything else because I was there with seven strangers. It was a trip that I got connected with through a missions organization, and so I didn't know anybody on the team. I sort of took a leap of faith, and so our team was seven. It was some other college kids and some other adults from just all around the country, and it was hard because we were a small team, and I am an extremely extroverted person, and so too much alone time is not good for me. (laughs) Too much loneliness, not enough connection can send me into a deep, dark spiral rather quickly. And so we were on this this trip, and it was hard. And we visited a lot of places and a lot of different ministries. But the most incredible thing that we did, in my mind, was the day that we spent at a leprosy colony. In Nepal, a lot of people are Hindu or Buddhist, and they believe very strongly in the system of karma. And so it's sort of a what goes around comes around system. And so if something bad happens to you, it's obviously a result of something bad that you have done. And so people, when they come down with diseases or problems like leprosy, they don't admit it because that is going to communicate to everybody that they've done something wrong. And so usually people don't seek treatment for leprosy or other terrible diseases until they're very far down the road and they're no longer able to hide what's going on because of karma. And so we went to this leprosy colony And everyone in the colony was undergoing treatment at this point, and they were all living together in a community, but most of them were missing parts of their limbs, and their bodies were shriveled up and tightened. A lot of them were missing pieces off their noses, their fingers, their toes, open sores. But most importantly, they were missing their place in society. They were missing their connection with other people. Most people are afraid to touch people with leprosy for good reason, because of fear of contracting the disease themselves. And we read about this in our miracle study on day one, how people had to wear torn clothes and announce their presence of unclean wherever they went. And this was not just an early Jewish tradition. This was all cultures and even part of culture in Nepal today, where people who have this disease are completely cut off from society, even after they start undergoing treatment. They're still cut off from the rest of their people. And so Jesus encountered more than one leper in the Bible. And this is a little bit about what it looked like untreated. The face resembles a coal half extinct, unctuous, shining and bloated with frequent hard knobs, green at the bottom and white at top. 
The eyes are red and inflamed and shine like those of a cat, the ears swollen and red, eaten with ulcers toward the bottom and encompassed with little glands, the nose sunk because of the rotting of the cartilage, the tongue dry and black, swollen, ulcerated, divided with furrows, and spotted with grains of white. That's a terrible, terrible illness. And this would have been the man that Jesus encountered in our story on Luke chapter 5. I'm not going to reread it for you because you already read it in your study, but this is what we're going to be talking about for the next couple minutes here. See, full, untreated leprosy. It made sense that no one wanted to get near this man. I would not have wanted to get near this man. But I did get near a person with leprosy. And she was in treatment, so it wasn't quite as traumatizing. She was scarred. She had some sores, but it wasn't quite as horrible a picture as this was. But she was still cut off. And her name was Mylita Ming. And so we went to the leprosy colony, and we brought lotions with us because none of the people there speak English. There's no way to really connect on a verbal level. So what we did was we brought lotion and we rubbed it on their hands and on their feet and on their bodies. It was a ministry of touch. And since I didn't really know what to do, I decided to sing. And so I sang with my Lita Mang as I put the lotion on her hands. And in that moment, I started to understand what leprosy means outside of being a horrible and disgusting illness. It's also loneliness. It's deep, deep loneliness. And as I spent time with my Mang, I realized that, that she and I were suffering from the same disease. Maybe not to the same extent, but I was also feeling a deep sense of loneliness. This was midway through our trip. I had been living with far less connection than I was accustomed to. I was living with people that didn't know me, people that didn't understand me. I was cut off from regular communication with people who loved me and people that I loved. And I was really lonely by that point. And my Lita Mang was lonely too. But on this day, we forged a connection through the love of Jesus that flowed in me, through what I was encouraged to do with on this team, we were able to connect with each other. And I touched her and I put lotion on her. And it was maybe the first time that she had been touched by another person besides a doctor in a very long time. She was less lonely that day and so was I. And this week, as we talk about Jesus as our healer, and we read the story of the leper, I think there's quite a few things we can learn from it about how Jesus is healer. But this morning, I want to focus on the important truth that Jesus heals our loneliness. He heals our loneliness. Our author put it this way on page 113. Touch means connection, relationship, acknowledgement, and these are all hallmarks of Jesus' healing ministry. You see, it's not enough to simply be made well. We see over and over again that Jesus heals people and returns them to their society, to their community. He does this with the leper. Remember, he sends him to the priest so that he can be restored. And the woman at the well, she was hiding away so that no one in her community would see her. She's drawing water at the hottest part of the day. And after she encounters Jesus, she runs back to the community that she was hiding from to tell them, all about Jesus. He restores people to their communities. Even going back to the water into wine story at the beginning of our study, Jesus was restoring their standing in society. He was saving them from societal ruin. 
And then, of course, even more than offering us the company of others, he heals our loneliness by offering friendship with himself. At the end of Matthew, one of the very last things that Jesus says to his disciples is, surely I will be with you always. This thing that we call the Great Commission, the sending of Jesus, he's saying, this is what we're all going to do. This is what you're going to do in my name. And don't forget, I'm always going to be with you, always. The disciples will do some hard things ahead, but, but Jesus promises them that he's going to stay with them, and that promise applies to us as well. He doesn't promise it will be easy. And just like Rhonda pointed out last week, there will be storms. It is not a question of if, but when, but we also have a promise that the Lord will be with us through those storms. He's going to heal our loneliness. He designed us to live in community with each other, but in moments when that community is lacking, he promises to be enough. But that's not all he heals us of. So every summer, our ministry takes four mission trips with the students. We go to Toronto, Ecuador, Mexico, and Milwaukee. There it goes. Okay, so in Ecuador, I went one time to Ecuador. Most of the time, I go on one of the other trips. But my experience in Ecuador was hard work. We do a lot of hard work there. And one of the days, we were in the jungle, and our job was to cut trails wider in the jungle so we have like machetes we're digging up plants we're doing all this hard gross sweaty work and as we're working i start to feel some stinging on my legs um all of a sudden i realize there are a lot of things that are biting me on my legs and so i yell at the boys to go away i'm like get out of here and i just drop my pants down and there's ants Lot, a lot of them, a lot of ants. And they're all over my legs, and so I'm swatting furiously, like trying to get all these ants off. I literally had ants in my pants. A hundred percent would not recommend to a friend. It was bad. Okay, so why am I bothering to tell you this story? Because every time I think of it, I think of this quote by Frederick Beekner. And this is what he says. He says, whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is not a God, if you don't have any doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. So let me tell you what I know about ants in the pants. When you have ants in your pants, you do not stand still. You move. You dance. You move all around. It is a very active thing that happens to you. You are not just chilling. Running around with your pants at your ankles, slapping your legs. And so this is what Beekner says that doubt does for our faith. It keeps it alive and moving if we are willing to bring it to God. And this is what I think we read about on day three of our study. It's the story found in Mark 9 of a demon-possessed boy and a desperate father. It's at the beginning of day three in a study if you want to follow along. And so the truth that I want to pull from this passage today, and there are many, but the truth about Jesus' healer is that Jesus heals us from our unbelief. You see, at first I wanted to say that Jesus heals us from our doubt, but then I realized that that's not necessarily true. I'm not willing to frame honest doubt as a disease because of the ants in the pants. Because honest doubt has the ability to drive us towards God, to cause us to cry out to him and to cling to him as we seek answers and comfort in him. But... 
I do believe that God wants to grow our faith. I do believe that he wants that doubt to drive us towards him and not away. And so in our study, when we read in Mark chapter 9, we focused on how Jesus heals the boy of his demon possession, and that is true. But he also does some healing work with the boy's father as well, the healing of unbelief. And so just as a refresher, this is the exchange between Jesus and this father. It begins with Jesus asking what's happening, because people are arguing, and the father explains that his son is demon-possessed, and the disciples have tried to cast out the demon and that they have failed. So this is the starting point for the desperate father. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. If you can do anything. It's kind of hard to judge the father for his reservations at this point. He's already seen the disciples try and fail. He's been living with fear that any moment this demon will take the life of his son. He knows eventually that the demon will kill his son and he can't get rid of it. And so in this incredible moment of desperation and vulnerability and humility, he says to Jesus, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Other translations of this verse tell us that the father cried out or that he had tears in his eyes, his tears of desperation and of repentance. See, this is what we call the paradox of faith. The man's faith is full of doubts. His faith and his unbelief are existing together in the very same moment. But notice how Jesus responds to him. There's no rebuke for this father. Jesus responds to the father of the demon-possessed boy with compassion rather than rebuke. Other times and other places, we know that Jesus rebuked people for having too little faith. In fact, just before this moment, Jesus decries the unbelieving generation. And there were other instances, like in Matthew 13, 58, in Mark 6, 4 to 6, where Jesus would not perform miracles because of the unbelief. And then, of course, there are times on the opposite end where Jesus healed someone solely on the basis of their faith. Like the story of the paralytic man, the blind man, the woman who had bleeding, the group of the ten lepers, where Jesus says something like, your faith has made you well. But that doesn't happen here. The man's faith isn't the thing that heals the son. But his lack of faith doesn't prevent the healing either. So what makes the situation different? I think it's it's the man's vulnerability and his honest request of Jesus for more faith. The word help here is from the Greek word boetheo. And it translates more to bring aid or comfort. Bringing aid or comfort. Those are words to me that speak more of healing than of like increasing or improving or enlarging or making something better or greater. He's not necessarily saying grow my unbelief. He's not necessarily saying to make my faith bigger. He's saying heal my unbelief. 
Help my unbelief. Boatheo, my unbelief. Bring aid and comfort. It's a tender request through tear-filled eyes. And Jesus answers it through healing the boy. In healing this physical problem, Jesus is healing the unbelief problem as well. He has grown this man's faith by showing him more of his power. And I believe that he does the same for us. I believe that he heals our own unbelief. We all wrestle with doubt, coming back to our Beekner quote, and that's not necessarily a bad thing to deal with doubt. But I do believe that God will grow our faith, that if we wrestle with him and we bring him our honest questions, he's going to make our faith stronger, even the parts that are broken. Because most of us experience doubt in the midst of deeply personal pain. So usually for me, it's not a matter of like an existential crisis when I'm full of doubt. Maybe some people are like that. But I think most of us, when we experience doubt, it's coming from something very hard, something that weighs heavily on our heart that we can't reconcile with a God who is good. And those are where the doubts arise. And these are the moments when we need our tender and compassionate Jesus who can meet our unbelief with his power and his comfort. He meets us in our unbelief, but he doesn't leave us there either. He heals that part of us. This is part of his healing ministry as well. And then the last element of Jesus, of our healer, that I want to take a look at this morning is the most important one. And that is that Jesus heals our sin problem. This is where we get to the miracles in which Jesus declares that your sins are forgiven including one of the very best miracle stories in the whole Bible, if I do say so myself. This is the story of the paralytic man and his loyal friends. Okay, there's so many great moments in this story. Belonging, or beginning, yeah, if you want to read along, we're in Mark 2, or it's written out on 115 of your study. That might be easier. Okay, so in this story, we have these men, and they're carrying their friend. And the Bible doesn't tell us, if they were young men or old men, but I sort of like to picture them as some of the teenage boys that I work with. Because this seems like a scheme that several of them would come up with, for sure. Where they're like, we got it, let's rip the roof off. Like, let's do whatever it takes. And so we don't know if they're young or maybe just young at heart, but they are adventurous. And so the house where Jesus is teaching is totally overflowing with people to the point where you can't even get in the door. And Jesus is likely inside, and everyone's crowding around. And so the men come, and they see that they can't get through the door, and so they're like, we got to find another way. And so the, the house was likely one story with a flat roof, and then there would be stairs that go up so they could get up to the roof. And so when they're up there, that's when they decide they're going to go in rather than around. And there was this large crowd of listeners in the story, but they don't all have the same intentions. You see, some of them had come through honest curiosity. Some of them wanted to hear the teachings of Jesus. They had been hearing rumors. They wanted to witness miracles, maybe, and so they come. But some other people there, like the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious elite, they were coming to catch Jesus in the act. They were coming to call him out as a hypocrite and a blasphemer. And so that's sort of the crowd that we're dealing with. It's a mixed crowd of supporters and not-so-supportive people. And the house is full, and the friends can't get through, but they're so determined, and they have these big imaginations, and so undeterred by the crowds, they hatch a plan. 
they're going to break in through the roof, piece by piece. And the people inside are just standing there listening, and there's probably like little bits of like dirt falling on to them, and then maybe a bigger chunk. And they're probably all saying, like, what is going on? And I don't know, what is Jesus doing in this? Does he just keep teaching? Does he have, like, a little knowing smile? I don't know. But I imagine it was a lengthy process. I don't think you just, like, rip the roof off. I think it probably took a little while. And so they're, they're tearing the roof apart, and then eventually we get to the moment where the, the hole is big enough, and they drop the man in. Well, hopefully not drop, but lower him <laughs> in at the feet of Jesus. And this is the part that I think is really interesting. We read that Jesus sees their faith. Whose faith? The faith of the friends. He sees their faith, and then he looks at the paralyzed man and forgives his sins. And these are the real head scratchers, I think, for the people that were experiencing this, especially for these friends. Like, I can picture them thinking, like, um, Jesus, but he still can't walk. Like, we kind of brought him here so that he could walk again. I don't know what they said. I don't even know if they said anything, but I imagine that that's sort of what they were thinking. Your sins are forgiven, but his legs are broken. And then, of course, the people who are there, the Pharisees and the scribes, the people who came to catch him in the act, they are appalled by what Jesus just said. And we get the idea that there was a very specific order to Jesus' healing and that part of this forgiveness of sins is he's showing in a very direct way that he is, in fact, the Son of God and that he is, in fact, God. He is declaring himself so that nobody can be confused about who or what Jesus is. And then we read in Mark 2, verses 8, that he knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? And that had to be very disconcerting, (laughs) to be thinking something in your head, and then Jesus reads your mind and calls you out for it. But Jesus is doing something really important, and there's a reason why he first heals the sin and then heals the physical problem. When he says, which is easier to say, he actually means which is easier to say, not which is easier to do. Which is easier to say? Because it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to back that up with proof or with evidence, right? So Jesus says your, your sins are forgiven, and everyone in the room is like, well, are they or aren't they? I'm not sure. So Jesus does this first. He's sort of setting the stage to say, I am not only the Son of God, I am God, because I am doing the thing that only God can do. Only God can offer forgiveness of sins. And then, only after that, does he heal the man's physical problem to back up his first point. So the second healing, the healing of the paralysis, points to the veracity of the first healing. If I can do this, and now I will show you that, now you know that that other thing that I claimed is also true. He's revealing himself as Lord. And he's revealing himself as the healer of our sin problem, which is the healer that we all need far more desperately than we need to be healed from anything else in our lives. And so now I think it's time to ask a question. Where do you need Jesus' healing power in your life. 
We all need it. When I was in Nepal, I had a loneliness problem. I don't think, um, I didn't think that God would ever meet me in that space with the gift of a woman who I couldn't talk to who had leprosy, but that was where he met me. That was where he gave me this friend who was lonely and who needed connection. I'm not sure I even realized that it was happening at the time. I'm not sure I even realized how Jesus was meeting that need, and I think that that's true of Jesus' healer as well. Maybe another question to ask is, where do you need to look back and see where he's healed you of something that you needed to be healed of? Because at the time, I don't think I really fully grasped what was happening in that moment with my Lita Meng. I did not realize how deeply God was meeting a need that I maybe hadn't fully realized I had myself. But isn't that just the sweetness of our God, that he meets the needs that we don't even always realize that we have? He is healing in the places I didn't even realize I needed healing. And so our two questions for thought this week are, where are the places that you need healing? And where are the places that you need to look back and recognize the healing that he's already done? Because he's doing a lot of healing work. We read about it in our study. And then this morning we looked at some different angles. But God wants to heal every single part of us. And that is a very, very good thing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... um, the way that you heal us. I thank you for the way that you gave me a gift when I didn't know I needed it. A gift of connection with the woman I couldn't even talk to. I pray that you would, um, in the coming days, in the coming weeks, that you would lay on my heart and on the hearts of every woman in this room the ways that you've healed us. Help us to look back in gratefulness for what you've done. Help us to take moments to pause and see where your healing hand has been in our lives and in the lives of the people that we care about. Thank you for your miracles. Thank you for the way that you proved um, that you were not just a man who could do miracles, but that you are, in fact, God. Your plans are so much better than ours. Your strategies are so much better than ours. What an amazing gift it is to be able to look back and see the ways that you were working. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.